0: invite you to open your Bibles with me this morning to the book of Hebrews where we just were. And while you have your finger in the book of Hebrews, I'm going to ask you to turn back and look at a couple of texts to introduce our study this morning. If you finger in Hebrews, please turn back to Luke chapter one. Luke chapter one, we're going to put in at verse 26. But before we do, let's seek the face of God once more. Our Father, we were just reminded in the last hymn that we are pilgrims. Indeed, this world is not our home. We are just passing through. We are strangers and aliens in this world. Indeed, we are residents here, but citizens above. We're called to keep our eyes upon Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, as we march through this world Indeed, by the strength of and with our eyes upon he who is the captain of our salvation. and Therefore, we pray that he would have his gracious way with each one of us this day. He would fit us out to be more effective pilgrims and soldiers in his army. That we would remember him who came into this world, he who was born of a babe, he who lived a perfectly holy life, He who died a sin-destroying, atoning death, indeed was raised by the power of God Himself, who ascended on high, is now seated there until He puts His enemies beneath His feet. We pray that this day our focus would be upon Him, even as we were exhorted earlier this morning, that our eyes would be upon Christ. We would have a fresh glimpse of His glory we would be strengthened by His grace in the inner man. And to that end, we pray that the preaching of the Word would bring Jesus before our eyes, whose Spirit would have His gracious way within each one of us. And we would not leave this place the way that we came. Sinners would leave here as saints, and saints would be built up in the strength of the Most Holy God. So have Your gracious way with each one of us according to our several needs because you're a God of mercy who delights to do good. For we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke 1, beginning at verse 26. Now in the sixth month the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth, to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph, of the descendants of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in he said to her, Hail, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at this statement, and kept wondering what kind of salutation this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and and will be called the son of the most high and the lord god will give him the throne of his father david and he will reign over the house of jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end and mary said to the angel how can this be since i am a virgin and the angel answered and said to her the holy spirit will come upon you and the power of the most high will overshadow you And for that reason the holy offspring shall be called the Son of God. And then John chapter 19, the other end of our Savior's life here we're considering in Luke the announcement of His conception and birth. And here in John chapter 19, the death of this one who was the Son of Mary and the Son of God. There were standing by the cross of Jesus, his mother. Verse 26. When therefore he saw his mother, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Well, may God add his own blessing to the reading and preaching of his word. Though the Bible prescribes no religious calendar for Israel under the new covenant to follow as it did for His people under the old covenant, the church for almost two millennia has held two events in the life of our Lord in special remembrance, if not official celebration, and I speak of course of Christmas and of Easter, of Jesus' birth and of His death both of those cosmic events of our Lord's incarnation and His atonement together mark pivotal events upon the redemptive history and the calendar of our Lord. The Prince of Life entered this world as a baby for one chief purpose, that he might die the death that his sinful people deserved, So that He might deliver us from our sins and might bring us to God. By Jesus' death in our place, He not only suffered the unspeakable horror of God's eternal wrath due us. By dying our death, He delivered us from death's sting and from eternal agony. His death also accomplished something else for those who trust Him. Dying in our place... He delivers us from the fear of death that plagues all sinners. By his suffering for us, Jesus has put to death the king of terrors, indeed death itself. This glorious truth lies behind Charles Wesley's hope-filled invitation. Come thou long-expected Jesus, born to set thy people free, from our fears and sins release us, "'Let us find our rest in Thee.'" Tragically, the world celebrates its Christless December holiday ignorant of the meaning and purpose of Christ's birth. Talk of gift-giving and Santa Claus only serves to distract those who desperately need to hear about the best of all gifts that God could ever give guilty, fearful sinners, And while the world contents itself annually rehearsing the fiction of a Christmas clown, the true message of Christmas largely goes unheard and unheeded. Only those who by saving grace have come to know and adore the Christ of the Bible experience peace with God, true and abiding joy and an exhilarating freedom from fear. So let us consider the message we have Before us from Hebrews chapter 2. I'm going to be reading our text, verses 14 and 15, in this larger context. Please follow with me as I begin reading in verse 9. But we do see him who has been made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren saying, I will proclaim thy name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing thy praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. Since then the children share in flesh and blood. He himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might deliver those who, through fear of death, were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Well, brethren, from this text, we see that the Lord Jesus Christ died not only to save us from our sin, but also to free us from the fear of death. So this morning, in our study, we're going to look at the birth of our Savior as the pattern for and the deliberateness of the Incarnation, His birth. And then we're going to look at the death of our Savior, the redemptive purpose of His Incarnation. And then we're going to look at the liberation by our Savior, Savior, this, the disarming power and emancipating effect of Jesus' death before coming to a few words of final application. So let us then consider the birth of our Savior. And as we look at the birth of our Savior, let us notice the pattern for and the deliberateness of the Incarnation. Notice first of all, the pattern for the Incarnation. Look at the words. Since then the children share in flesh... And blood. Now, brethren, we ought not to miss the astonishing statement that this is. Think about it. We are made in God's image in creation. And yet, Jesus, the eternal Son of God, who is infinite spirit, is made in our image in the incarnation. This is an amazing thing. He whom Isaiah calls Mighty God and Eternal Father receives the pattern for His incarnation from His children, the Creator from the created, the Redeemer from those whom He came to redeem, the Son of God from those who become sons of God. By common confession, the Apostle Paul says, Great is the mystery of godliness. Behold the Marvelous mystery revealed in 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 the incarnation. God's Son must fully share our humanity if He is going to be our Savior. He must be born of woman. And though an infinite distance exists between the eternal Son of God and mankind, He did not refuse to become united with our flesh and blood. So he stooped down to become one with those that he came to save. Paul expresses his wonder in another place, Ephesians, uh, excuse me, Philippians chapter 2, who although he existed in the form of God did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, because it belonged to him, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness So who is this that condescended to share in our flesh and blood? Well, ponder with me his divine identity evident in the titles and descriptions given of him in Hebrews chapters 1 and 2. In chapter 1 and verse 5 he's called, My Son. He's called God. In chapter 1 and verse 8, verse 10 he's called, Lord. Again, in verse 10, He's called the Creator and the Eternal One who does not change and whose years do not come to an end in verses 10 and 11. Again, He's called Lord in chapter 2 in verse 3, Jesus chapter 2 in verse 9. In verse 10 of chapter 2, He's called the Captain or the author of our salvation. It's this one, the writer to the Hebrews says, took upon himself, he shared our flesh and blood. It is this holy offspring, to use the language of the angel, who assumed our humanity at conception, that was carried for nine months in the ordinary way before being born to his mother Mary, He possessed every essential quality of our humanity to acceptably represent those that He came to redeem. We read in another place in Luke, He kept increasing in wisdom and stature, growing in favor with God and with men. He was ordinary in every outward way we would see. He grew. He went from being a little boy to being an adult man. He grew in favor with God and with men. He grew socially. He grew spiritually. And he experienced the full range of our creature limitations. He experienced hunger and thirst and bone weariness. The full range of mental and emotional effects of our humanity. We read of him being sorrowful. We read of him weeping. We see of, at times of him being filled with joy and other times being amazed. And as a man, he was tempted to sin. In fact, he faced temptation at a level of intensity by the devil. Far greater than that experienced by any man. The devil poured out all of his hellish fury in trying to tempt Jesus to be derailed from the road to the cross, that he would prove to be unfitted to be our Savior. We read about that temptation there in the desert. And the temptation, no doubt, was fiercest in the garden when He was tempted to turn from the way of the cross. Bless God that though Jesus was tempted, He was not able to sin. His victory over temptation qualified Him to use the language of Hebrews, to be a high priest who can sympathize with our weakness. Why? Because He has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin, you see had Jesus saved he could not or sinned he could not be our savior. We read in the writer the writer of the Hebrews says it was fitting that we should have such a high priest holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens. You see his sinlessness amidst the fiercest of temptation enables us to draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. It was our successful Savior that grants us that kind of help and assistance. That Jesus won the victory over temptation and then over our sin in flesh and blood qualifies Him to be our Savior. So, this is the pattern as we're looking at the pattern for Christ's incarnation. Since then, the flesh, then the children share in flesh and blood. So, who are we? Who are we who are the pattern? Who are we as a flesh and blood that form the pattern for Jesus' incarnation? Well, notice that it's not all mankind in general that the writer of the Hebrews has in mind, but it's of believers in particular. It is with them that he specifically identifies. This becomes evident by an examination of the immediate context. Working backward from our text, we find that we were slaves to the fear of death before our redemption. Verse 15 of chapter 2. Who are they? They are the children of God, verses 13 and 14. They are called brethren by Christ, verses 11 and 12. God is their Father, verse 11. They are sanctified by the Lord, also verse 11. They are the many sons who will be brought to glory, verse 10. And they are the ones for whom Jesus tasted death, verse 9. Jesus was made one. He was fashioned after the image of his own children. So, that briefly is the pattern for Jesus' incarnation that the children share, that he shares in the children's flesh and blood. Notice now the deliberateness of the incarnation. He himself likewise also partook of the same. The Son of God purposefully became a man. Notice two factors in Jesus' deliberateness in becoming man. Consider first the staggering condescension, the staggering condescension apparent in his incarnation. And this is underscored by the words he himself. It didn't just say he partook. It says, He Himself partook. The emphasis is upon the purposefulness of the Son of God in taking upon our humanity, in sharing in our flesh and blood. Look at verse 9. He Himself, who is Almighty Eternal God, for a short time was made lower than the angels... He himself, who created the boundless universe and the numberless angels, bowed the heavens and stooped to become one with us. He himself became one, identifying not with Adam in his unfallen state, but with Adam's fallen children. He veiled his gracious godhood beneath his ordinary manhood. No kingly crown adorned his brow, no halo his head, no glow emanated from his body. He had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, nor appearance that we should be attracted to him, said the ancient prophet. Indeed, even after his resurrection his his glory was veiled so that two of his own disciples were unaware of his identity. The Almighty Creator identified Himself with His weak creatures. The three times Holy One with those who are perfectly unholy. Notice further the unreserved voluntariness evident in Jesus' incarnation. He Himself also partook. Now brethren, I say this reverently. But in eternity past, the eternal Son of God needed no arm twisting from His Father to enter this fallen world, to assume our humanity, and then to die to save His elect upon the cross. There was no coercion in the Godhead. The Father didn't lean upon an unreceptive Son. No, as it were, the Lord the second person of the Trinity said, Here am I, send me. He gladly is a lamb slain from before the foundation of the world. And when he entered this broken, sinful world, he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. But even with his heart broken over men's sins, we read in the book of Hebrews that he was anointed with the oil of joy above his fellows, He endured mortal agony for the joy set before Him, enduring this cross and despising its shame. You see, He was animated by the promise of saving a world of sinners that no man can number. I suggest that He eagerly volunteered for the Father's mission of mercy, though He knew what it would Cost him. He knew what the cross would bring. He knew the agony under the wrath of God that would soon be visited upon him. That's why there was a wrinkle in his brow. He set his face like flint to go to Jerusalem. And the disciples were afraid of him at that point. They could see something in our Savior's countenance that that struck fear, or at least bewilderment, in their own hearts. Because he knew what was waiting for him. He spoke to them many times. Of being arrested. Of being beaten. Of being spat upon. Of being put to death. This is not all. Our Lord gladly chose to unite himself forever with our humanity. He didn't put on our humanity in order to live a holy life and die a sin atoning death and then put it off when He finished His redemptive work. No, it's the man Christ Jesus who is seated at the right hand of the Father who ever lives to make intercession for us. He is indissolubly united with our humanity forever. He can never become separated from His manhood He is now and forever the eternal God-man, Jesus Christ. Isaiah announced our Lord's eternal incarnation. You know the text. Isaiah 9 and verse 6. For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace... It was in this way to borrow from the language of John's gospel that the word who was in the beginning with God and who was God, by whom all things were made, was made flesh and dwelt amongst us. Such is the language of Paul in Romans and 1 Timothy that he was sent in the likeness of sinful flesh and thus God was revealed in the flesh. Romans eight three and first Timothy three sixteen. Great is the mystery of godliness that God should become fully man without becoming anything less than fully God. Two natures united in one person forever. Listen to a precise and pregnant statement of the doctrine of Christ's incarnation in our own confession. If you want to follow along, it's page 674 in our hymn books. London Baptist Confession of Faith of Christ the Mediator, paragraph 2. The Son of God, the second person in the Holy Trinity being very and eternal God, the brightness of the Father's glory, of one substance and equal with him who made the world, who upholds and governs all things he hath made, did, when the fullness of time was come, take upon him man's nature, with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof, yet without sin, being conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, the Holy Spirit coming down upon her, and the power of the Most High overshadowing her, and so was made of a woman of the tribe of Judah, of the seed of Abraham and David, according to the Scriptures, so that two whole, perfect, And distinct natures were inseparably joined together in one person without conversion, composition, or confusion. Which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man? Westminster Shorter Catechism, Doctrine of the Incarnation states this with the strictest economy of language. Who is the Redeemer of God's elect, it asks? Answer, the only Redeemer of God's elect is the Lord Jesus Christ, who, being the eternal Son of God, became man, and so was, and continueth to be God and man in two distinct natures, and one person forever. That's the shorthand. Many serious heresies have arisen that have and still do plague the church, which deviate from this orthodox orthodox doctrine of the person of Christ. Let us rather behold and adore the glorious God-man, Jesus Christ, the only Savior of sinners. So that, very briefly, is the birth of our Savior, the pattern for and deliberateness of the Incarnation. Notice, secondly, the death of our Savior, the redemptive purpose of the Incarnation, that through death. We sing of the glorious purpose behind Jesus' Incarnation, of thou who camest on earth to die that fallen man ...might live thereby. Brethren, it is by the death of the incarnate Son of God that we live. He came to give life and to give that life abundantly, but not apart from the death that He came to die. I remember seeing a a picture of that contemplated this truth. It showed the image of a person who was supposedly The Lord Jesus Christ, like a little boy will do, he rubbed his eyes when he came outside. The sun was shining low in the sky, and he stretched out his arms to greet the day, and cast behind him was a shadow of a cross. He came from glory and took our humanity so that he could drink his cup of woe to make us triumphant over sin, Satan, and death. Beloved, these three words that through death form the glorious centerpiece of our text in these two verses, they express the means through which the devil is defeated and by which we are freed from the fear of death. Notice here that Jesus' incarnation is insufficient by itself to accomplish our redemption and deliverance. The Bible teaches that Bethlehem's manger is powerless without Calvary's cross. The Son of God came not merely to be born and live amongst us. He came to die for us. He is the just one who suffered for the unjust that He might bring us to God. You see, Calvary's cross answers such crucial questions as these... How may guilty sinners be made right before a holy God? How may we who are heirs of hell and doomed to eternal death become acceptable to God and be made heirs of heaven? How do we escape everlasting death and destruction? Well, the answer is the cross of Jesus Christ. The evangelical prophet foresaw this And that day when we would gain victory in Jesus by His death and resurrection, Isaiah 53 and verse 12, Therefore, as a result of Him coming into this world and of dying for the sins of His people, therefore I will allot Him a portion with the great, and He will divide the booty with the strong. Because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 12. Therefore, notice finally, by way of exposition, the writer's practical burden. He's concerned that his readers appreciate the liberating effects of Christ's death. We've seen the birth of our Savior. We've seen the pattern for and the deliberateness of his incarnation. In the words, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same. We've seen the redemptive purpose of the incarnation, that is, the death of our Savior, in the words, that through death. Notice thirdly, and lastly, by way of exposition... Liberation by our Savior, the disarming power and emancipating effect of Jesus' death, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might deliver those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Let me ask you this morning, do you you fear death? Are you prepared to die? If your day should end today, are you ready? How do you know you're ready? Now elsewhere in the epistle, the writer enlarges upon the blessed effects of Christ's death... He informs us that Christ's sacrificial self-giving provides for the forgiveness of our sins. It enables us to boldly enter into the holy place that Jesus, by His death, opened to us the way into God's presence. That by the offering of Himself, Jesus perfects those who are being sanctified. That the shedding of His blood as the perfect sacrifice... It is that by which he is able to cleanse our conscience from dead works so that we may serve the living God. All these blessings are the purchase of his blood made available to us only by his death. But there's a special focus, very specific lens focused upon death here. Not Jesus' death, but our death. Are we ready to die? And are we ready to die comfortably? The writer here, he focuses upon the blessed practical impact of Christ's humanity and death for the Christian as he contemplates his own death. Now, unless Jesus comes back in our lifetime, the question is settled. We are going to die one day. But are we ready to die? How are we going to face death? Jesus' death has accomplished two astounding things here. First, it has disarmed the devil who has the power of death. And secondly, it liberates Christians from the fear of death. Let's take those up one by one. Notice first, the disarming power of Jesus' death upon the devil, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. Now, this is a most curious statement, isn't it? What does it mean? Now, it raises many questions, does it not? Among them are what is the devil's power over death? And how does Christ's death render the devil powerless over death? Well, understand first of all that the devil is not sovereign over death. Only God is. He makes alive and he kills. And yet these words assume Jesus' statement that the devil was a murderer from the beginning. It was by the devil's temptation that our first parents sinned and died, first spiritually and then later physically. Why? For the wages of sin is what? It's death. Only one man has been born without sin and therefore exempt from the curse of death. Indeed, it was our Jesus who voluntarily placed himself under the curse of God that he might free those who were born under the curse. Sinners like ourselves. You see, had he not conquered the devil in death, we would be people of, uh, of all people most miserable. We would have no hope in life or in death. Eternal misery would be our fearful unending, our unending state, terrible fate. But brethren, we see here that God mercifully intervened. After pronouncing judgment upon Adam and Eve, He promised to provide a deliverer, foreordained from before the foundation of the world, a coming seed of the woman who would gain the victory over Satan by his own death, Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. It's been called the proto-gospel, the first gospel what did god say to our first mother he said and i will put enmity between you and the or he said this to satan i will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed he's speaking judgment to the devil here he that is the seed of the woman he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel Here's the promise that is being fleshed out here in the book of Hebrews. Indeed, this promise is given in other places. This glorious deliverance is affirmed in the New Testament as being accomplished by the Lord Jesus, 1 John 3 and verse 8, "...the Son of God appeared for this purpose, that He might destroy the works of the devil." Paul speaks of this in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 15. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, talking about wicked angels, he disarmed them. They had to throw down the weapons of their warfare at his feet when the captain of our salvation triumphed over him. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them ...through Him. That's what Jesus did on the cross. You see, because of Jesus' death, the devil is a defeated foe. He defanged our fearsome enemy upon the cross. And so, brethren, when it comes for our time to die, the devil has no part in us because of what Jesus did for us. He took away the sting of death... Listen to the words of Puritan William Gouge. He observes that Christ, by His death, offered Himself up a sacrifice, whereby such a price was paid for our sins as satisfied God's justice, pacified His wrath, removed the curse of the law, and so spoiled Satan of all his power, Rested his weapons out of his hands, set free those whom he held captive, and brought himself into captivity. This was... He... Oh, excuse me. Thus was he, as a bee, has lost her sting, which might buzz and make a noise, but could not sting... You see, the, the lion that roars has been defanged. He has no claws left. All he can do is roar and attempt to scare. Yes, he can still tempt us, but his power over death has been completely removed from him. Gush goes on to say, Christ also by his death hath clean altered the original nature of our death, which was passage from this world into Satan's prison, even into death itself, where his vassals are tormented. But now it is made a passage into heaven, where he hath nothing at all to do, so as thereby believers are clean out of his clutches, so as he cannot so much as assault them. This being done by Christ's death, Thereby is the devil spoiled of his power. End of quote. We have a champion that came in the person of the incarnate Son of God, the captain of our salvation, who defeated the last enemy, not just death, but the one who had the power of death over death. That is the devil. So what does Jesus' victory over the devil mean for followers of Christ? Notice, secondly, the emancipating effect of Jesus' death upon Christians. That through death he might deliver those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Now, if you're not a Christian, you are still subject to this slavery. But if you are a Christian, you were subject to this slavery all your life before now we need to understand something here that the fear of death that the writer of hebrews is speaking of here is not our instinctive aversion to dying all men have that christians and non-christians we have a strong sense of self-preservation a will to live we don't want to die This is part of our humanity, whether we are sinners or saints. Instead, the fear of death which enslaves is a fear of divine judgment, of eternal punishment that is the effect of a bad conscience toward God because of our sin. Satan exploits this by striking fear into the hearts of the wicked, by inflicting their guilty consciences with the fear of death and of hell you know why people don't like to talk about death it's because they see themselves one day as facing it they don't like to go to a funeral who likes to go to a funeral except for the death of a christian because then a, a body is laid in the ground that's going to be raised glorious one day They don't like to see an open casket because they don't like to see their face on that body. Why don't they like to see their face on that body? The very ones that shout that there is no God is because they know that one day they're going to have to stand before this God in whom they presently live, move, and have their being. They're going to have to answer to Him who gave them life. They're going to have to stand before him who gave them opportunities to turn from their sin and be saved, to turn from death and to truly live. It may be they avert their eyes when they drive by a cemetery. They just don't like to talk. They'd rather talk about the funnies in the newspaper than the obituaries. We have an aversion to death, not just because of the disillusion of our body, because we know we're going to have to stand before the God who gave us life, and we're going to have to give an account of our life. And if we're not safely hid with Christ in God, if we're not in the ark of Jesus Christ upon the tumultuous flood of this life, if we're cast overboard, we're not ready. We're not ready to stand before our God. It's not fear of the cessation of life. It's the knowledge that life continues. And those that take their own life realize a moment after they do that this life goes on. And those ones that died laughing at the cross realizes, realize that there's a Jesus that they're going to have to answer to someday. And that day is now. Satan exploits this by striking fear into the hearts of the wicked. And I suggest that the devil knows this fear himself, and he wants to share it with others. He's going to torment them here, and he's going to torment them there, in this life and in the life to come. He knows that all rebels against God will be punished with eternal fire. And, brethren, I suggest to you that to one degree or another, all people outside of Christ are haunted with this fear. It dogs them every day. Sometimes they get away from it by their parties and their heads filled with music. They don't like to get alone with their thoughts because this comes up time and time again and it won't let them rest. Job speaks of this in Job 18 and verse 11. All around terrors frighten him and harry him at every step. God speaks of those in In the Pentateuch of having a bad conscience in this way that they run. No one's following them. They're frightened by the sound of a driven leaf. They have a bad conscience. And they can't get away from it. Running as fast as they can into wickedness. It only creates further fear of death. Compounds their sense of doom. This fear is the motivation behind pagan rituals with their vain attempts to appease the wrath of God and ease their guilty conscience. This fear Jesus has banished by his overcoming death, by the power of the cross and through the open tomb. You see, brethren, his death has put this fear to death. Therefore, why should we fear? 1 Corinthians verses 15, verses 55 through 57. Oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. We know we're lawbreakers. We know that our breaking of the law is sin. We know that God is going to deal with us someday because of our violations of His law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. He's given us victory over this fear because he's, he died the death that we deserve. Something more. Jesus' death has made our last enemy into our friend. You say, how can he do that? There's no longer any sting. Jesus took the sting. We don't experience that. He suffered under the wrath of God, body and soul, and he tasted death for us. You see, by conquering the grave for us, Jesus has made death not a doorway into hell, but the gate to glory. What did Jesus say? If the Son shall make you free, you shall be what? Free indeed. So what does it say to us by way of abiding message? Three things quickly. First, may we never cease to marvel at the miracle of Jesus' incarnation. Oh, the condescending grace of the infinitely glorious second person of the Trinity, that he should choose to become one with man that he might save us from the wrath to come. First Timothy three and verse sixteen. And by common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh, was vindicated in the spirit, beheld by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. That's the one who became our Savior, who took upon our humanity. Secondly, may we draw continual courage and consolation from Jesus' pardon and protection, which we gain through the cross of our incarnate Son of God. You see, by His death, He both purchased our pardon from sin and procured our protection from Satan and delivered us from hell. He suffered the devil's heel bruise that he might inflict upon his head a deadly blow. Child of God, for you, death is no longer a haunting specter. Jesus, our Savior, has spoiled death of its terror. Therefore, let us live a cheerful and hopeful life with our eyes upon today and however many tomorrows God may give us. Let us pillow our heads upon Jesus' saving work when it comes time for us to die. The hymn writer puts it this way Sin's bonds severed, we're delivered. Christ has bruised the serpent's head. Death no longer is the stronger. Hell itself is captive led. Christ has risen from death's prison. O'er the tomb, he light has shed. And another one puts it this way. When ends life's transient dream, when death's cold, sullen stream shall o'er me roll. Bless Savior, then in love, fear and distrust remove. Oh, bear me safe above a ransomed soul. Thirdly and finally, they sinners who fear death seek Jesus for eternal pardon and protection. There's a gospel word here for you. You will never know freedom from the fear of death as long as your sins remain unpardoned. They stand pointing their finger at you before God, and you know it. You can't get away from it. Haunting thoughts of the grave will dog you all your days until you're delivered from the wrath to come. Oh, happy day may it be soon for you. Your liberation comes only through the forgiveness of your sins. Sins you must pay forever if you die unforgiven. But Jesus gives us this promise. John 5 verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. Do you have this life? Don't leave here without that life. Until you seek Jesus at the cross, you lie under the wrath of God. Satan will be God's hangman. And you know that you're guilty before God. But the blame rests squarely upon you since you bring God's judgment upon yourself. So what's the word to you? Trust in the Lord. He who pardons believing sinners will protect you from fear here and from hell hereafter. Call upon him while he is near. Seek him while he may be found. The fact is you desperately need God's pardoning, protecting mercy. Now is the day of salvation. Turn to Jesus. May you be taught by grace to cry with God's people. O come, thou rod of Jesse, free thine own from Satan's tyranny. From depths of hell thy people save, and give them victory o'er the grave. O come, thou day spring from on high, and cheer us by thy drawing nigh. Disperse the gloomy clouds of night, and death's dark shadows put to flight. If it hasn't been already, may that be your experience even today. The writer of the Hebrews says that Jesus is able to save forever those who come to God through him. Jesus states it simply, come to me. Come to him today. Let's pray. Or our Father, we, we come to you and we confess that we are needy sinners. We need Jesus Christ to deliver us from the wrath to come. We need Jesus Christ to give us the hope that belongs to a pardoned and purified people, people that are even protected now by the power of God through faith for a salvation to be revealed in the last time. And we pray for those who have not that protection, who know not that faith, for whom Jesus is judge even now, because they will not cry out to him to save them from their sins. We pray that for them, that this one who will judge them then will become their savior now, so that they might avert the gavel that will come down and, and, and say, guilty is charged, condemned to hell. And for your people, strengthen them. Strengthen them in the promise that when they die, they shall see Jesus, the author and finisher of their faith. So, Lord, we thank you that you sent your son into this world to be born of a woman born under the law, that he might grant freedom and liberty to those who are under the law in adoption, that we might be the sons of God. We bless God even this morning through Jesus Christ. Lord, hear us as we pray these things. Call out for yourself a children yet to be born, born again even this day for wherever the gospel is preached. Expand your kingdom in the hearts of your people. Extend that kingdom throughout the world, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.